0: Welcome to the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Research Learning Series podcast, which focuses on helping you become a star research scholar. I'm Mary Haas, a Medical Education Fellow at the University of Michigan and part of the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine team. Meet my husband and fellow ER doc, Nate Haas.
1: And I'm Nate. I'm also an emergency physician at the University of Michigan, where my research interests include the ED-ICU interface and topics like DKA and cardiac arrest.
0: I'm bringing the education background,
1: and I'm bringing the research background. We're excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Rob Ehrman, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Wayne State School of Medicine, and a pro-researcher on topics like the relationship between cardiac function
2: and sepsis. So Rob, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for having me, Mary and Nate. I grew up in the Chicago area. I went to medical school at Northwestern University in Chicago and then did my EM training at Yale. Then I went on and did my ultrasound fellowship at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. So I've been in Detroit for about four years. And as I've gotten more involved in research, I found that I really enjoyed the nuts and bolts and technical aspects. So I actually decided to go back to school. And now I'm about halfway through getting a master's in clinical research design and statistical analysis from the University of Michigan. And I'll be done in the spring. Go
0: blue. So the topic of today's podcast is, wait for it, how to handle the dreaded rejection. Because no good talk is complete without a classic quote. Albert Einstein once said, failure is success in progress. And I think that's going to be the theme of our session today.
1: I think it's always powerful to start with the story when it comes to a topic like this. You're clearly very successful in what you do, but have you ever dealt with rejection?
2: Yeah, I think I have no shortage of anecdotes about rejection, both Personal and professional. The one that really sticks with me is all the way from my childhood. I actually used to play hockey when I was younger and I was fairly good. And so when I was about 11 or 12, I got invited to try out for this sort of elite traveling team. And I remember the coolest part about it was that you got to play a game at the end of the season in Chicago Stadium, which is where the Chicago Blackhawks played. So I'd seen tons of games there. So I was so excited about it. I tried out and of course I didn't make it. And I was so dejected and I moped for days and days. And I think at one point I told my dad that I wanted to quit playing hockey altogether and he didn't really say anything. And then I went to bed. And then when I woke up the next morning, there was this printout of a quote taped to my mirror and it was press on. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. So this is something Calvin Coolidge said. I'm sure I didn't really understand at the time, but it actually stayed taped next to my mirror for the next six years. And I actually brought it with me to college. So I probably looked at that quote every day for at least 10 years. It must have seeped into my subconscious because I remember when I started my current job, I presented a project at our departmental research meeting and I got annihilated, just destroyed. I I had made a PowerPoint presentation and I got through about two slides before essentially just being talked off the stage. The guy who leads it, Phil Levy, who's a very prolific EM researcher and is now one of my mentors, stops me after the meeting and he says, we need to talk in what I remember as being a very ominous way. And I thought he was going to basically tell me to get lost and never come back. But as I was driving home, that quote popped back into my head. Ultimately, he turned out to be super supportive and has actually helped me to get where I am now. So shout out. Thanks, Phil, as have a number of other people. It was at that time that I first understood what my dad was trying to tell me all those years ago.
0: Love that quote. Thanks for sharing that powerful story. Rejection is a fairly broad term. What does it mean for a research proposal to be rejected? What are the different ways that this can happen?
2: There's a lot of different ways that a research proposal can get rejected. I think what most people think of when they hear that is in the setting of a grant application, there are different gradations to having your grant proposal rejected. I think the most ignominious is just having your proposal triaged, which essentially means some people have reviewed it, but it's not actually felt to be worthy of discussion and full review by the committee, ultimately because it's low impact, low priority, and thus very unlikely to get funded. Many grant funding sources use this NIH model where you get a score where a lower is actually better across a number of domains, and this determines whether or not you get funded. Ultimately, the overall score gives you an idea of how competitive your proposal was. A lot of institutions will do their own internal reviews and critiques prior to you actually submitting it to the funding agency, but the general idea is the same. I think that's a really helpful summary.
1: What are some of the most likely reasons that proposals will actually get rejected?
2: Man, that's a tough question. Like so many other things in research, I think the answer is actually, it depends. As I kind of get more into this, the first thing that I think is really important to understand or at the very least come to terms with is that there really are more good ideas and good researchers out there than there is money to support them. So getting grant money is tough. Ultimately, some rejection is inevitable. This is sad, but true. But in terms of more concrete reasons, there are a few broad categories. One is really the lack of necessary experience. I mean, ultimately, you need to start small things like institutional grants, foundation grants before you think about trying to get federal dollars. Really, the idea is to apply for funding mechanisms that are appropriate to your level of training and experience So you might have a great idea for a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled RCT, but if you've never participated in one before, no one's going to give you a million dollars to run one or even $10,000 for the first time. And that's okay. Everybody starts somewhere. One of the real key points is that you have to have a mentor early. You need to get involved with other researchers at your institutions. This ultimately helps you develop a track record of productivity, which for the most part is publications. But this is absolutely necessary if you want to do grant funded research. Another common issue is projects that are either too broad in scope or too ambitious, at least for a single project. You could have a great idea, but it needs to be feasible to complete within the confines of a specific proposal. It is good to think big overall, something like, I want to cure cancer, but this is in terms of your long-term career goals, your long-term research goals. But you're probably not going to cure cancer or change the world with a $50,000 grant in one year. You need to think about small, completable projects that ultimately build towards a larger goal, and these are going to be better received. A lot of funding agencies, and this is another one of those sad but true facts about research, is that they tend to favor lower-risk research, even if the rewards tend to be lower. They want, ultimately, to be able to to show something for their money, right? In the case of NIH, they have to answer to Congress if they give somebody $5 million and they get nothing from it, and they do that enough times, someone's going to start asking questions. Now, there are ways around this. You build a project that is on paper, explicitly safe and simple, and you sort of save the cutting edge stuff for exploratory aims. Or maybe you just don't mention them and do them anyways because your other project still works. As I said before, this is another area where having a mentor is critical. Something else that is really important, and this gets overlooked not infrequently, is to really make sure you follow the rules, by which I mean the application guidelines. It's super tedious to read these, and a lot of them have a ton of fine print, but it can really save you a lot of time and effort and heartache in the end. You know, this would be things like, do you qualify for the grant? Some grants will say that you have to be in the first five years of training after residency or something along those lines. Are the guidelines for the grant really a good fit for your project? On an even more basic level, you really have to make sure you include everything that the application asks for. So as an example, if you were supposed to include a letter of support from your department chair, but it's not included, you're probably disqualified from the grant, at least for that cycle. And sometimes you'll only be able to submit a grant once a year. So little simple things like that can do you in. Another thing that goes along with that is just this idea of good grantsmanship, and this is basically having it look professional. Use things like your spell check, make sure your punctuation is appropriate. An application that's full of typos might not disqualify you outright, but it certainly doesn't move you to the top of the pile. You also shouldn't wait till the last minute to do your application or ask your co-investigators or supporting people to do their stuff at the last minute because grant reviewers know when something is rushed. A rushed application looks rushed. Now, again, this might not completely disqualify you, but in a super competitive market, it's certainly not going to put you to the top of the pile Is an example, I reviewed a grant once where the personal statement on everybody's NIH biosketch was simply copy and pasted four times verbatim. So, you know, this makes you look sloppy or lazy or both, and neither of which is good.
0: So you're saying start small, follow the rules, spell check, and don't wait till the last minute. Got it. So let's say you just recently heard back that your research proposal that you put your blood, sweat, and tears into gets rejected. What do you do? How do you find out why it got rejected?
2: the first and most important idea is that it's okay to be angry it's okay to be sad you've sunk hours and hours and hours of your time into this project and now it's been rejected so it's natural to grieve take a few hours maybe even a few days to just sit there and stew with your disappointment commiserate with someone hopefully you'll have a colleague or a mentor that can help you do this the first time I had a grant that was rejected my mentor mentor was really supportive. And we kind of sat down and made disparaging remarks about the reviewers. On the one hand, it's kind of childish and not productive. And we went back and forth, but it it actually did make me feel better. It kind of got it off of my chest. So this went on for about a week, at which point he said, okay, now we got to sit down and really address these comments and make steps to improve them. The learning point for me was that, you know, yes, be angry, be upset, and then move on. When you get rejected, what happens is you, you generally get comments back from your reviewers with scores. As I said, a lot of funding agencies will use the NIH scoring system. This will help you give a general idea of what the reviewers liked and did not like. You'll get different comments for the different sections. It can be hard to figure out exactly what the issue was. Was this some aspect of your proposal scientifically unsound, or was it something that was hard to understand? If you're looking at NIH grants, you can actually call the program officer, and this is someone who actually sits in on the study section so they have a better idea of what was actually discussed in the room, which obviously not all of that gets translated to paper. So You can get additional information from them, but that's not typically done for other funding mechanisms, unfortunately.
1: Now that we have a sense for why the proposal might have been rejected the first time around, what are some of the ways we can maximize the likelihood of it getting accepted the next time around?
2: In terms of how you get your proposal not rejected, there's a couple of ways. As I said before, get angry, but move on and don't take it personally, which is really, really hard. You feel really deeply personally rejected, like people sat around a table and talked about what a terrible scientist you are. But that's not the case. The next thing you really need to do is sit down and go through all of the comments. And what I like to do is sort of summarize all of the comments from the different sections to try to tease out what the issues are. I also try to get someone else to do the same thing and then sit down together and discuss it so that we can be sure that we're really fixing the problem that needs fixing. As I had said before, sometimes a reviewer might not understand exactly what you're trying to say or do. An aspect that some people probably don't realize is that many grant reviewers are not always content experts it can help to try to explain very complex or esoteric aspects of your project in layperson terms. Because at the end of the day, if if a reviewer doesn't understand what you want to do or they don't understand some aspect of your process, they're probably not going to give you any money. This can be intensely frustrating, but again, it's one of those things you just have to accept. So once you have a good idea of what the issues actually are, then you go about fixing them, at least to the extent that you're able to do this. Again, another aspect where mentoring is key. Some problems are going to be fixable, and unfortunately, some problems are not fixable or at least not easily fixable. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean trash in the application. Hopefully, your mentor would have stopped you from submitting something that awful. But sometimes you actually have to do a wholesale revision and really change the foundation of the grant. Sometimes you have to submit to a different funding mechanism, or sometimes there's some intermediate steps Before you can go back to your initial idea, this might be collecting some preliminary data before you reapply. So having somebody who's knowledgeable and really can be honest with you about these issues is critical. A
0: couple of the points you make are resounding themes that we have heard come up in some of our other podcasts. One of them is that you have to be careful when you make the assumption that whoever's reading your IRB or your grant proposal, that they're a content expert. And you have to really make sure to explain and break down complex concepts because they may not be a content expert and they may even actually be a layperson. And the second one is the importance of having good mentorship. I think those are two themes that have come up over and over again. And I'm sure you're familiar with the Ben Franklin axiom that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. This is something that can probably also be applied to putting the work in to prevent rejection in the first place. How can you avoid rejection the next time around once it happens?
2: Obviously, like you said, the natural extension is, what's the solution? And they really are the same things. I mean, when you're reapplying, it is the same project. It's the same basic idea. Ultimately, and this is probably good advice for anything, but start early. Allow way more time than you think you'll need. The best advice I've been given is to write your grant and then show it to as many people who will agree to read it essentially as possible, and people who agree to provide honest and open feedback, sometimes even harsh feedback. In particular, sometimes you want to find your biggest critic or someone who's argumentative or someone who likes to poke holes in methodology. I find that most institutions have somebody like this. Really what you're trying to do is find as many possible flaws in your proposal before you submit it. If you can find somebody who's actually skeptical about your area of research, even better. So I do ultrasound stuff. There's somebody who's in our research division who's actually pretty skeptical about ultrasound. And I used to not get along with him because he would always poke holes and be cranky about my stuff. But he's the first person I seek out because if I can convince him that I can probably convince somebody else or there is merit to my project. Now, you don't necessarily have to make all of the changes that they suggest, but at least having everybody's perspective can be really helpful. Having a fresh pair of eyes can always point out flaws that you hadn't noticed or areas that require more explanation. Some institutions run mock study sessions. This can be really useful. You always want to take advantage of whatever resources your institution has. I know I've said this before, but don't take in it personally. The goal is to get funded, even though it can be hard at times, ignoring advice from successful researchers when they disagree with you or they don't really quite have a good understanding of what you're trying to do is ultimately probably shooting yourself in the foot. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. We've learned a ton
1: from you today and we're grateful that you're able to join us and to share some of your wisdom with us. We'd like to try to conclude and wrap up these podcasts with about five take-home points to leave the listeners with as they go forward with their research endeavors. So, here's a list of five takeaway points that we've taken away from today.
0: Number 1, get a mentor. Number 2, most proposals get rejected, especially on the first submission. Number three, be persistent. Very successful researchers probably have more overall failures. Number four, solicit feedback, both before submission and once you receive comments from reviewers. And number five, have a plan, both for a specific project and application, but also for your overall research career goals. And don't rush. Any last parting words for our listeners today, Rob?
2: Research is hard, but it's a labor of love. I just actually finished writing a grant with two residents. And when we were all done, one of them said it was probably one of the most painful and horrible things he'd ever done. And he asked me how I could make a career out of doing this. I told him that I don't know if I get up in the morning really excited is like the greatest thing I could do today would be write a grant or if anybody really wakes up feeling that way. But the flip side to that is that it's not that painful either. I think about it as training for a marathon or something along those lines. Ultimately, there's something in the process that's enjoyable and the end result is enjoyable. Parts of it along the way are certainly hard and laborious, but it's not enough to make you want to quit. My parting advice is that if writing a grant application or even doing research in general is onerous or feels like torture, you're either doing it wrong or maybe it's not for you. That's awesome advice. Thanks so much.
0: That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the SAM Research Learning Series podcast. Subscribe to our Academic Life and Emergency Medicine podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes to catch the next episode.
1: See you next time.